Well, it is an honor to be back with you guys. Thank you, Greg, for the opportunity. And uh, I thought just quickly before I started the Bible study, I would go back to this idea that Miranda's grandparents had attended church here and raised their family here. Miranda's dad and uncle, identical twins, Ted and Ned Landers, growing up as children in this church. Uh, but their parents, Fred and Mary, I thought it was especially significant, and, and maybe this week in particular, because, um, you know, when we've been here in the past, we've met a few people who remember the Landers family. And, uh, and you know, Fred and Mary were journalists. This hasn't been the greatest week for journalists. Fred and Mary were loved in this church, but they were also known and appreciated in the community. I believe they, they wrote for the Mail Tribune. And, uh, and so, you know, it could be that there are some people here this morning who are journalists. I won't ask you to raise your hand or stand up. You might even feel a little vulnerable right about now. But just to say that what an honorable profession. What an incredible thing you do. You know, as we celebrate our freedom this week, uh, a free press is one of the many things that we're thankful for in this country, right? So, so we appreciate you. Thank you so much. If you're a journalist of any kind, thank you so much for what you do and for what you add to our freedom and to our lives um, we're, we're grateful for it today. Well, so, I want to paint a picture for you, one that I think many of you will immediately find familiar. Uh, picture boxes and tape guns, furniture pads, tie-downs, um, let's say dollies. And, and if you've moved any time recently, well, you know the familiar sound of a list of, of packing materials and packing supplies, right? It's been two years since we were here. Has anyone moved in the last two years? Either from one city to another or one home to another, one apartment to another? Yeah, some of you. Anybody, is anybody else anticipating a move like this summer or, or still this year? You know, so many people move, like lots and lots of people. I didn't know until I read that something like 40 million Americans relocate. Every single year. It's an amazing thing. And there are so many reasons why people do that, why they relocate. Sometimes it's by choice, right? Sometimes, like, we are so excited about the opportunity to relocate from one place to another. But other times it's not by choice at all. Sometimes the relocation is forced upon us. It's not something we would have chosen. It could be because of a death or a divorce or, you know, an unexpected uh, transfer something like that. But regardless of whether you choose your relocation or not, it's stressful, isn't it? Like, you know, they have entire websites dedicated to moving. You can go and type in the date that you're going to move, and it will create to-do lists for you. It will give you a checklist of things that you need to have accomplished 30 days out, two weeks out, one week out, the day before you leave on your trip. And now I'm feeling stress. My blood pressure is rising just thinking about all of the boxes that you would have to check if you were in the middle of a move. So again, lots and lots of relocation stress that you could feel. But did you know that lots of people in the Bible felt that and experienced that? The Bible is filled with stories about people who relocated. We're going to look at one of those today. So go ahead and turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 1. Again, I mean, Adam and Eve, they were evicted from the garden. You get all the way to the book of Revelation, and you see God's people relocating, among others. <laughs> Lots of relocation from one end of the Bible to the next. 
But somewhere in between is a story about this man named Daniel, a teenager, really, when we meet him, and about his relocation. And so as we look at his story, we're going to be reminded that there can be transformation and relocation. Now, if you're thinking, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not moving right now. Moving in this case, relocating in this case, is just a metaphor for change. And things are changing all the time. If you're not facing change right now, you will be soon. And so we can experience transformation and relocation. Let's have a a word of prayer before we dive into the text. Father, speak to us through Daniel chapter 1. It's always so reassuring to know that though this story took place such a long time ago, it really took place. There really was a Daniel. He and his friends really were in um, Babylon. And we can learn so much from from his and their experiences, from their story that will position us to make the most of change in our lives. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our first point is that we want to look at Daniel at the food court. Look at verse 1. Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, this is six centuries before Christ, to put it on a timeline. So, you know, if we're 2,000 years this side of the cross, they they were 600 years that side of the cross. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar came not just once or even twice, but three times like this to, um, you know, siege Jerusalem. And so this is the first of those three sieges. Each time he came, he took captives. Uh, starting with this first time. And among those taken into captivity was King Jehoiakim. Now, he wouldn't be gone long. Nebuchadnezzar would actually return Jehoiakim to the land, setting him up as a puppet king. But Jehoiakim was not the only one taken into captivity. There were others. We're going to talk about those. You guys remember when you were in school, like the school year just ended, right? So if you have like a middle school student or a high school student in your house, they probably got a yearbook or an annual. You remember those? Uh, this time of year, if you, you know, going back to your childhood, you'd be at home. You'd be looking at your yearbook and looking at the things your friends wrote. Stay cool, you know, don't change, stuff like that. And uh, there would be pictures. Your, everybody's, you know, school picture would be in there. Class pictures would be in there. Photos taken at events throughout the year. But also there were, like, the surveys. Polls, maybe, would be a better, better word for it. Where people were voted most likely, you know, to do this, most likely to do that. You remember that? like most likely to succeed, that sort of thing. I have a pastor friend 
who, when he was in school, one year he opened up his annual only to discover that he had been voted most likely to go to hell. Which is ironic since he now helps people not go there for a living. Um, if that hurt his feelings, it didn't last long because he soon discovered that in the very same poll, his brother was voted most likely to marry outside the species. Somehow he found that comforting. He was okay with uh, what he had been voted at that point. Nebuchadnezzar obviously was looking for those teenagers voted most likely to succeed. And as described in verses 3 and 4, they were to be physically and mentally fit. Now, almost as an aside, did you notice that reference to the master of eunuchs? If you're like me, you have people in your life. They could be family members. They could be friends. They could be people that you work with or live near who don't take the Bible seriously. You take the Bible seriously. Why else would you be here listening to me go on and on about the Bible, except that you take it seriously, but, but maybe you know someone, maybe you care about someone who doesn't take it seriously. And they say things like this. They say, well, I can't take the Bible seriously because it's filled with historical inaccuracies, it's you know, filled with scientific inaccuracies, it's filled with contradictions. Have you ever heard that one? It's filled with contradictions. Can I make a suggestion? The next time someone tells you that the Bible is filled with contradictions, hand them one and ask them to show you a contradiction. I promise you that 99 times in 100, they will have no idea where in the Bible to turn to show you a contradiction. They don't know from reading it. They're just repeating something their parents taught them, something a college professor said. They have no idea where to take you in the Bible to show you a contradiction. But the one time in 100 that they do know where to take you, because there are some problem passages. There are some passages that are difficult to understand or to reconcile but on the off chance that they actually can take you to one i promise if you'll go and do just a little bit of homework a little bit of investigation you'll be able to come back with a really thoughtful well-reasoned response but you know again another thing people say is that it's filled with historical inaccuracies and for the longest time this was thought to be one people would say well there's no archaeological evidence that there was any such role as master of eunuchs in babylon they thought that for the longest time until archaeologists found what we now know as the Babylonian Chronicle. There on a clay tablet was a reference to the Rabsaris, which means, you guessed it, Master Eunuch. And so if you were to visit the British Museum, you could actually see with your own eyes this clay tablet. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had in mind for these guys a three-year conditioning program. Basically, what he wanted to do over the course of time was to reprogram their minds. I mean, he wanted to change their thoughts. He wanted to change their beliefs. And so he began with their education. If you look at the text, notice in verse 4, this reference to language and literature. Um, language is the coolest thing. I've always admired people who can speak more than one language. Is there anybody here that's bilingual, trilingual, you can speak more than one language? Yeah, I see hands going up. So my wife also is bilingual. She was born to American missionaries in Italy. She lived in Italy till she was eight years old. She spoke Italian before she ever spoke English. In fact, at one point in her career, she recorded an album in Italian and did a tour of Italy. How cool is that? Me, I'm still working on English, still trying to get English down. It's kind of a funny thing because when my eldest daughter, Lauren, was in high school, she took Spanish and and you know how at the beginning of the year, as a parent, usually there's an opportunity to go and, and like you have, you have your student's schedule. And so you go from classroom to classroom and you're in each room, you know, 10 minutes or something and the bell rings and you go to the next room. 
Teacher gives a short presentation about the semester, the syllabus, takes questions. So I'm in Lauren's Spanish classroom. Her teacher um, had a bizarre obsession with Chewbacca. That has nothing to do with my point. I just thought you should know because that's just so, like, I mean, if you're going to be obsessed with Star Wars, why Chewbacca? It was Chewbacca. Everything was Chewbacca. But anyway, he, he, he told us about the year, about his plan, and, and then he took questions. Nobody asked a question. It was so awkward. It'd be like if I opened it up for questions right now and you could just hear crickets. And I tried again, it's still crickets. And again, it's still crickets. It'd be so awkward, right? It's like painful. So I should have helped this guy out. I should have thrown him a bone. I should have asked him a question, just anything. And the truth is, I have to admit, I had a question for him. I wanted to know why after two years of high school Spanish, the only thing I can remember is tu estas loco. Now, don't get me wrong, that can come in handy every now and again, but, I mean, I got a B, I got a B, and you'd think I'd remember more than that. Anyway, I didn't ask him. But the Babylonians, they were like crazy educated. They knew so much about astronomy and even mathematics, I mean, like really, really advanced in their day in those and perhaps other subjects. But Nebuchadnezzar, you see, I mean, if he was just trying to educate them, what's wrong with that? Nothing, right? Like, education is awesome. When I look back on my life, I wish I'd gotten more education, not less. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do more than educate them. He was trying to move them away from the Bible. Make no mistake about it, the Bible is, is where Daniel and his friends would learn everything they needed to know about who they were, about who God was, about what it meant to be a part of this nation that had been chosen by him to bless the world, like, like what it meant to be in a covenant relationship with God. The Bible would help them understand what they were doing in captivity in Babylon, how long it might last, what was going to happen afterwards. Like all of that was to be found in the pages of the scriptures. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted them reading anything but that. Now, it wasn't just their education, it was their culture. Notice in verse 5, the reference to delicacies and wine. To these teenagers, Babylon must have seemed like a food court. You know, if you have a teenager in your house, you know how it is. You cannot keep the pantry full. Like the refrigerator was filled five minutes ago, and now it's empty. How does that happen? It can be difficult, right? So here's these teenage boys who eat like teenagers do, but on top of that, well, their city's been under siege. First thing you do if you were besieging an ancient city is cut off the food supply. These guys are hungry. They're starving. And here they are in this food court in Babylon. I mean, I imagine that they must have felt conflicted. It was kind of a good thing and kind of a bad thing. We're going to talk about why. But the Babylonians, well, they were super cultured. Like we know because of the archaeological digs and finds that there's like all these extraordinary objects of art and culture to be found in their ruins. There's nothing wrong with culture, nothing wrong with good food, right? It's fun to try new foods and have fun dining experiences. But again, Nebuchadnezzar was up to more than that. He wasn't just trying to introduce them to new foods. He was trying to move them away from their lifestyle. In the Bible, they had dietary laws that they were supposed to follow, right? In the Old Testament law, there were lists of things to eat and lists of things not to eat. And there's a good chance that some of the things that were presented to them were on the not to eat list. Now, now think of it. If you were Daniel, you know, if you were Jewish, you'd been taken into captivity, you had these dietary laws. What that means is that every single time you had a meal, every time you sat down to breakfast, to lunch, to dinner, you would be reminded by what was on your plate 
by what was not on your plate, by how the food on your plate had been prepared, you would be reminded about God and about your special relationship with him. Think of it, just looking at the plate in front of you. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them thinking about anything but that. It wasn't just their education and their culture, it was also their religion itself. In verse 6, there's a reference to them receiving new names. Have you ever thought about changing your name or wished that your parents had given you another name? Have you ever been watching the news and heard what some celebrity named their kid and thought, what? Like seriously. And sometimes you meet somebody and it's not that there's anything wrong with that first name or that last name, but that first name and that last name together, train wreck. Like what were they thinking? Like, like sometimes you think, how intoxicated were your parents in the hospital when they filled out the form? Like how does, how does somebody get a name like this? Um, I've always had issues with my own name. My last name is Rig. And, well, when I was in school, you know how kids are. It didn't take long before some genius figured out what rhymes with rig. Pig. So I went from being rig to being rig pig to just being pig. And, uh, and, and because, understandably, rigs is so much more common than rig, um, I often find an S at the end of my last name. And so it wasn't just pig, but pigs. They had to add the S to that, too. So I could be walking down the hall at school, and somebody would you know, turn around from their locker and be like, Hey, pigs. What's up, pigs? I hated that. I thought that, was, I thought that was terrible. I did have some ideas how to redeem it, though. Like, I thought if I ever had a son, which I didn't. I've got two amazing daughters and now a granddaughter, but I never had a son. If I'd had a son, I was going to name him Big. Because <laughs> Big Rig would be the coolest boy's name ever, ever. Again, I didn't get to use it. I had another idea back in the 80s. You know, I was in Hollywood, California, playing in a Christian glam band, spandex, hairspray, lipstick. Don't think about it because you can't unsee it. But <laughs> I'd have shown you a picture. I didn't want your eyes to hurt. <clears throat> so I thought maybe after the band had run its course, maybe at some point I would have a solo career. And so I had it all planned out how I would redeem my name. I thought, well, I will call my first solo album Rigamarole, because it kind of sounds like rock and roll. And then, and then my second album I would call Rigatoni, just because I could. And then, and then when I was just ready to hang it up, ready for a break, before my last tour, my last album would come out, I'd call it Rigor Mortis, would have been <laughs> perfect way to finish. Now, Actually, I couldn't have done any of that because once I got to Hollywood, I decided not to use rig at all. I went by Alan Lee, which is based on my middle name. My middle name is Leroy. So Alan Lee was, you know, like the first part of my name. But I hated Leroy. Like growing up, I thought that was a horrible name. Now, if, you, if your name is Leroy, I'm so sorry. I've already hurt your feelings. Like I've lost you. You're not going to hear anything else I say this morning. Um, maybe you'll feel differently if you just hear me out. But as a kid, I was wrong. I had a bad attitude. I needed to be adjusted. But I just did not like, like the name Leroy. I didn't like it. I didn't think I looked like a Leroy. I don't even know what a Leroy looks like. I just didn't think I was one. So I just I had a hard time with, with Leroy. My friends knew not to call me Leroy. If they, if they knew that was my name, then they'd call me that. It'd be Leroy Pigs forever once they got a hold of that and figured that out. But, you know, my grandmother, I'm a junior. I'm a junior, so I'm Alan Leroy Rigg Jr. So the last time that I saw my grandmother on this earth, my dad's mom, 
She came to visit me in Austin, Texas when I was pastoring there. And, of course, I didn't know it was going to be the last time I saw her, but I took advantage of the opportunity to ask her things I'd always wondered about. One of the things I asked her was what she was thinking when she gave my dad the middle name Leroy that I then got stuck with. And it turns out that she, she named him, his middle name, she named him after her favorite uncle. She spoke so um, emotionally, so like this man really meant the world to her, this man. And his last name was Lemon. Leroy Lemon. And there's a name, Leroy Lemon. It's like a character in a book or something. But she loved him so much. And so just, just hearing that began to soften my heart. Like I started to feel differently about the name. After she passed, I, I saw my dad and he showed me this book. Um, somebody in our family had done some research um, about, you know, our genealogy and had found a bunch of old family photos. And so I saw this picture I'd never seen before. It was a picture um, of a group of men, all of them, you know, my relatives, my ancestors. In this picture was Leroy Lemon. And so, I don't know, there's five or six guys in this picture, and they were all musicians. They had a band. Several of them were holding instruments. And so now I'm like, man, how rock star is Leroy? Like, Leroy is awesome. That's like a cool name now. It's interesting how that kind of insight can change the way you feel. Well, so... Listen, I, I said that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to change their religion. The Babylonians were super religious people. They were into polytheism. They were also really into astrology. But these names, I'm not going to break it down for you. You've probably heard it done before. You could go online, any Bible study program online. Uh, you can click on the words and see what the names mean. I'll let you do that. I just want to tell you, kind of for 30,000 feet, I just want to give you the big picture. Their given names all spoke of the one true and living God. And their new names, the ones that they were given in Babylon, each of those names spoke of one of the false gods worshipped in Babylon. So not unlike what we said about the food. If you were Daniel and his friends, then growing up, every single time you heard your name, you would be reminded about God. You'd be reminded about your relationship to God. You'd be reminded that God knew you in your mother's womb, you know, that he has a plan for your life. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them thinking about that, so he's trying to move them away from God. Now, we have an enemy too, don't we? We call him different things. I mean, we may call him the devil, call him Satan, call him the evil one. He too has a conditioning program. Three years? No. We wish it was only three years. It's lifelong. And let me tell you something about his reconditioning program. Like, he never takes a day off. He never takes a vacation. He's working on us 24-7, 365, like, like he doesn't even take a lunch break, just constantly hammering away at us in the same way to move us away from the Bible, to move us away from a better life, to move us away from God. So before we move on to our second point, let me ask you where you are in your journey. Where are you in your your faith journey, your relationship with God. As a follower of Christ, are you moving toward the Bible or are you moving away from it? Are you moving toward a better life or are you moving away from it? Are you moving toward God or are you moving away from him? Daniel at the food court. Let's see Daniel in a food fight beginning in verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. 
For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. As you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. Have you guys ever been in a food fight? I don't mean like with your sibling at the dinner table. I mean like in a public place with strangers. I've totally been in one of those. It's when I was in middle school, and so we were in the cafeteria. I'm seated at a table with a bunch of friends, and of course there are many other tables and lots and lots of other students. And all of a sudden somebody yells, food fight! And the next thing you know, everybody's lunch is airborne. It was unbelievable. Like visibility instantly dropped to zero. You've heard of the food pyramid? We were building it right in the middle of the cafeteria. It was unreal. And I'll never forget this one particular thing that happened. We had, we had an assistant principal who we called Link. Now, this is so wrong. I share this to my shame. But we called him Link because he had the most prominent forehead I've ever seen in my life. Like you would need a ski lift to get to the top. I mean, it was, it was that extreme. He had this massive forehead. And so he is running across the lunchroom to try to bring order to the chaos when somebody launches a milkshake. I can still see this cup. I mean, spinning so tightly that frozen treat's just staying tight inside. And it's spinning and spinning, and it hits him right in the head. That chocolate deliciousness is running right off that pale forehead, dripping. It was awesome. Like, I don't remember very much of that school year, but I will never forget that food fight. That is like an academic highlight for me. So... So here's Daniel, he's in this food court, and people are downing the delicacies, and they're washing it down with wine, and all of a sudden, Daniel puts his hands to his mouth and yells, food fight! Now, why would Daniel want to fight about food, right? Well, notice in verse 8, twice we see that word defiled. We talked about you know, it probably wasn't kosher. Remember we talked about the list of things to eat, the list of things not to eat. So there's a real good chance that there were things served that were on the not to eat list. But to take it a step further, there's also a chance that they were served food that had been offered to idols. Now any student of the New Testament knows that this was an issue for first century followers of Christ whether or not they should eat food that had been dedicated to idols. But, but you may not have known that this was an issue that went back to Old Testament times too. And it's entirely possible that the food in front of Daniel had been, had been dedicated to these idols, to these false gods. That might have been an issue for him. Now in the New Testament, we get Paul's take. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, Paul says that it's all about conscience. And I'll just address this very quickly. He says that there are two kinds of consciences, a strong conscience and a weak conscience. It would be easy to think that one is a compliment and the other a critique, a criticism. That's not the case at all. It's purely descriptive. A strong conscience means a conscience that's less sensitive. Think of like a smoke detector in your house where the threshold is set higher. Like you pretty much got to start a bonfire right under it to set it off. And then a weak conscience means a more sensitive conscience. Uh, so think of a smoke detector that that is set with a very low threshold, like you just even think about toasting a marshmallow on vacation, and it goes off. 
So it's like that. Two kinds of consciences that are like that. In the Bible, there's lots of things that are black and white. Lots of things that we're told to do. Lots of things that we're told not to do. But there are other things that are gray. And so someone with a strong conscience, that is the higher threshold, it takes way more to set it off, they look at gray and they see white. And a person with a weak conscience, you know, a lower threshold, it takes way less to set it off, they look at gray and they see black. Neither is really right or wrong. Um, it's just where they are and how they are. So Paul says in Romans 14, verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So usually we say that, you know, you just, you need to be sensitive to conscience. You need to be sensitive to your own conscience, but also to that of other people. And, and so, you know, that brings up kind of the whole idea of, of stumbling people. And, and I think that's something that is important and something that needs to be addressed but it's also something that is so often misunderstood. If you do something and I don't like it, you didn't stumble me. If you do something and it irritates or annoys me, you didn't stumble me. If you do something and I wish you hadn't, you didn't stumble me. But if you do something that I don't have the freedom to do and you doing it makes me feel conflicted, like I think, well, maybe I should revisit it, and I start to think about it, and I wrestle with it, and then I cave in and I do it, and immediately I feel guilty. I know that I've done something wrong, at least wrong for me. Well, well then you've stumbled me. So it's important to differentiate between those two things because all too often we think of it only in the first way. And I think that's a really destructive thing. Uh, you don't ever want a situation where an intolerant minority hijacked the culture of an entire church. We need to love each other and be sensitive to each other and do our best not ever to stumble each other. This all-you-can-eat buffet must have seemed like a really small thing. If you were Daniel and his friends, I told you already, these guys were hungry. They'd been deprived of food. Uh, this had to seem like a small thing. And why not cheat a little to get ahead? Everybody else does, right? I mean, for us, like if you're a sports fan, how many athletes have been suspended um, or even banned because of doping, steroids, stimulants, HGH? Well, it's like that in every part of life. People cutting corners, people cheating to get ahead. And, uh, and they might have been tempted to do that, right? When in Babylon, what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. They could have even been mad at God. They could have felt like, well, God, where were you when they were taking people into captivity? You let me be brought here. I'm hungry. I got to eat. And for all they knew, their lives might even depend on how well they did in this little, this little competition of sorts. But these guys were not going to cut corners. Notice in verse 8, it says Daniel purposed in his heart. He had a purposeful heart. Or to put it another way, a heartfelt purpose. What is yours? You know, one thing I've discovered relative to this is that if your purpose in life is to do, if you're all about accomplishing and achieving and accumulating, you're going to be tempted to cut corners. But if your purpose in life is to be, if you're focused instead on character, on becoming the woman or the man that God's called you to be, you're not going to be as tempted to cut corners. And you know the other thing I've noticed? We come over here, so here's the people that are all about doing. And when you and I are all about doing, you know what we tell ourselves? We tell ourselves that we are about to focus on being. Like, I'm going to focus on spiritual growth and personal development and all of that. I'm going to focus on character and integrity as soon as I get this promotion. As soon as I close this deal. As soon as I flip this house. As soon as I you know, finish purchasing this thing then I'm going to focus on being, and they don't ever get around to it. Doers rarely get around to being. But people who are all about being first, people who say, you know what, my first priority is to be a woman of integrity, to be a man of character, it's to grow spiritually, it's to become more like Christ, they almost always get around to doing. 
So it's so much better to focus on being first. You know, I love that Daniel and his friends, they didn't just refuse to eat. They could have, right? They could have been like your, 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 your baby at home, your infant at home. Maybe they're just old enough that you're starting to try to feed them, you know, baby food or whatever. And you know how kids could be like, mm-mm, 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 And it doesn't matter what you do. You're all like, trying, and they still don't want any part of it. Or worse, they take it into their mouth and spit it right into your face. It's not good, right? But Daniel wasn't like that, and he didn't give up when the chief eunuch said he couldn't help him. Instead, he suggested an alternative to the steward. There's an example here. There's a saying, you've heard it, that if you're not part of the solution, you're just part of the problem. Anyone can point out a problem, and most people do. Few people will offer a solution, and even fewer will roll up their sleeves and take ownership of it. This is true at home. This is true at work. This is true at school. You know where else it's true? At church, oh my goodness. I mean, 18 years I led uh, Calvary Austin, the Calvary Chapel in Austin, Texas. And if I had a dollar for every conversation that I had at the door in the lobby with someone who could tell me what was wrong with the church or who could give me suggestions for what we needed to do, you know, how we could fix this, how we could fix that, how we could improve this. If I had a dollar for every one of those conversations, I'd never have to work another day in my life. But do you know how few of those people you know, had a real specific plan, not only as to how to address it, but were actually volunteering to do it themselves? It was always an idea for what I needed to do. It was always an idea for my family or for my leadership, for my staff. If you want to excel, if you want to excel at home, if you want to excel at, at school or at work, if you want to excel right here at church, be a problem solver. Not just a problem spotter. Well, so this diet was a vegetarian diet. I've discovered there are two kinds of people in this world. There are veggie lovers and there are veggie haters. How many veggie lovers do we have this morning? Yeah, quite a few. How many veggie haters do we have? Now, a couple of the haters are just like really hating right now. They're like, ugh. The rest are like malnourished. They can't. They're just, uh, just really need some broccoli right now. How many, how many veggie lovers again? Yeah, quite a few veggie lovers. So I'm a veggie lover. I can, I can identify with you guys. Like, like you know you're a veggie lover when you love some vegetables that other veggie lovers hate. Does that make sense? Let me throw out some things like, like I love artichoke hearts. Anybody down with the artichoke hearts? Good, right? How about Brussels sprouts? Come on now. So good. Other things that you might eat if you were on a vegetarian diet, like, like hominy. I love hominy. See, I'm pushing you now. Like, my support is gone. It's crickets. There's, try one more. Lima beans. Come on. Now, a little butter, a little salt. Never hurt. So good. So good. Um, but even though I love vegetables, nobody's ever accused me of being a vegetarian. I love my meat. In fact, when we were in Austin, we had a favorite barbecue place. Um, called Pokey Joe's Smokehouse. And they had a t-shirt that I thought was the greatest restaurant t-shirt of all time. It said, vegetarian is Indian for can't hunt. (laughs) That's how we roll in Texas. Now, I've got another pastor friend who says that if God didn't mean for us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of steak. And I think that's a philosophy to live by. So the thing is, 
I want to say that this is not about vegetarianism. Like, they had a vegetable diet. That's what worked for them under these circumstances. We've talked about why this is not pro-vegetarian or anti-vegetarian, pro-vegan, anti-vegan. All of those ways of eating are fine ways to go. That's not really the point here. So we've seen Daniel at the food court in a food fight, and finally Daniel with food for thought. Look at verse 15. At the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these young men, these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So, you know, they've been in this competitive eating situation. Anybody here follow competitive eating? You know, you can turn on ESPN, and they're often showing competitive eating. I would think with the 4th of July being this week, this is probably a time when you might see a competitive eating event. I don't know about you, me and my friends argue sometimes like, like really you turn on the sports network and they're showing competitive eating. Like when did eating become a sport? Is it a sport? They show cards, people playing cards. Like when did cards become a sport? Eating is a sport. So anyway, if you follow it at all, you probably know the name Joey Chestnut. Joey Chestnut's probably the most well-known competitive eater. And, uh, and if you think this isn't to be taken seriously, Joey Chestnut is banking like $200,000 a year, shoving hot dogs down his face. I mean, if you knew as a teenager when you were eating your parents out of house and home, if you knew you could get paid to do that, would it have changed your course in life? Would you have skipped college and just hung out at the all-you-can-eat buffet, building your skill set? I don't know. It might have made a difference, right? Well, so these guys won the competition. And before you run to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or wherever you like to get your produce, you need to read the fine print on the diet. Notice in verse 15 it says that they were fatter in flesh. Now, I don't have a degree in marketing. I've never worked for an advertising firm. But I'm thinking that's probably not the best way to market your diet. Fatter in flesh. It is because I am fatter in flesh that I am on Weight Watchers right now. I'm counting my points right now. No joke. So when I read that, I'm like, yeah, that's not the program for me. That's not what I'm looking for. But the funny thing is, this has less to do with one's gut and more to do with one's God. So listen, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. Let me say it again. Life with God works in a way that life without him doesn't. So in what part of your life, you know, are you having trouble? What part of your life isn't working? In what way is that part of your life out of alignment with God? What do you need to do about that? My sister lived in Austin at one point when I was there, and she had a van that was giving her trouble. And, uh, and so she was describing the problem to me. It sounded to me like she had an alignment problem, like she needed to have her van aligned. She needed to get an alignment. So she asked me if I would go with her to the mechanic, and I did. We went inside. We described the problem. He agreed. It sounds like you need an alignment. He pulled her up on the computer. Her account popped right up. She'd been there before. He's like, oh, yeah, last time you were here, we told you you needed an alignment. Now, here's what's never happened in the history of driving. Nobody out of alignment has ever been driving down the road and hit a pothole. Boom! Hey, we're back in alignment. What are the odds? Like, that's never happened. No one has ever just driven their car back into alignment. And nobody has ever just recklessly lived their life back into alignment. If we're going to get our lives into alignment with God, we're going to have to be proactive. We're going to have to be intentional. Read the Bible and see what it says about that part of your life. 
Pray and ask God to show you about that part of your life. Talk to people around you who love you and who love God about that part of your life. Verse 18, at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all was found. None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So here's the crazy thing. I mean, this test. You remember tests? I've taken you back to your school days more than once this morning. I'm going to take you back again. Remember the pop quizzes, the midterms, the finals, the written tests, the oral tests. There were fill-in-the-blank tests, a multiple-choice test. There were true-false tests. I mean, how many of you feel a rush of anxiety when you hear this? Take out your Scantron form and your number two pencil. Like instant post-traumatic stress. You know, like we all need therapy from those stressful testing situations. For these guys, it's three years later, and they're not just going to take any test. They're going to take an oral exam. And it's going to be administered by Nebuchadnezzar himself. How scary was that? But you know what? They aced that test. Now notice in verse 21, it says that Daniel continued. And if we continued reading Daniel, what we would discover is that the story doesn't end here. Not for Daniel and not for his friends. For Daniel's friends, I mean, here are Daniel's friends in the food court. But in chapter 3, they would find themselves in a fiery furnace. Here's Daniel in the food court. In chapter 6, we'll find Daniel in a lion's den. You know, the tests only get harder. The temptation only gets greater. It takes courage to live the Christian life. Some people think that it's a sign of weakness to follow Christ. It's not. You know, some people say things like, well, you know, religion is a crutch and so forth. And, and often we answer, it's not a crutch. It's like the whole hospital. I mean, it's the triage. It's the ER. It's the ICU. It's the NICU. I mean, it's the whole thing because we need him. But make no mistake about it, it's not an easy thing. It's a difficult thing. You know, you're not going with the tide. You're going against the tide. You choose to live as a man or a woman of faith. And and, and we experience that, especially in these times of testing and temptation. Now, I want to encourage you to think about this. I know that when we're in the food court, you might be in the food court right now. You know, in your life, you're in the food court. You're someplace you didn't expect to be. You're being tested and tempted in ways that you don't want to be. And maybe, like Daniel and his friends might have felt, you might be afraid, you might be you might feel lonely. They must have felt homesick. They might have felt mad at God. They must have been confused why God would allow this. Maybe you're in a place like that in your life right now. But think about Daniel and his friends. If they had not faced and passed the test in the food court, do you think Daniel's friends ever, ever would have been ready for the test that was coming in the fiery furnace? If Daniel had not faced and passed the test in the food court? Do you think that he ever would have been prepared to face the test in the lion's den? And if the food court is the very thing that prepared them for those experiences, how thankful do you think they were in hindsight for their experiences in the food court? What if you knew, as unhappy as you are to be in the food court this morning, 
What if you knew that just down the road there's a fiery furnace for you? What if you knew that just down the road there was a lion's den waiting for you? And what if you knew that it was this experience right here, right now, that was going to prepare you for that? Could you see the food court as a blessing? Could you see God allowing you to be in the place that you're in as a mercy? Could it transform the way you feel about your present situation? You know, the funny thing is, as it was, in fact, a temptation, there's that part of them that, again, might have just said, it's a little sin. If we gave in, this is just a little thing. This is just a small thing. This is not a big sin. It's a little tiny sin. It's not a big, huge thing. It's just a little tiny thing. Don't we think like that? Don't we try to rationalize like that? But, but here's the thing. Not everyone who compromises in small ways goes on to compromise in big ways. That might be what you thought I was setting up. It's not true. Not everyone who compromises in a small way will go on to compromise in a big way. But everyone who compromises in a big way compromised in a small way first. I know it by experience. My greatest failures have been preceded by smaller compromises first. You know it by experience too, don't you? And if this is true, if this is true, well then, small things matter. Or to put it another way, there are no small things. That thing that you're rationalizing right now, it's just a small thing. No, there are no small things. Things. And so, again, in verse 21, Daniel continued. Dan the man. I mean, he was going to outlast Nebuchadnezzar. He was going to outlast the Babylonian Empire. Three times in Daniel, he's called greatly beloved. In Ezra, twice he's mentioned along with Noah and Job. Pretty good company, right? Jesus himself, in both Matthew and Mark, refers to him as Daniel the prophet. Amazing, amazing man. We saw him at the food court in a food fight and with food for thought. Now you talk about relocation stress. I mean, when he was taken as a captive, relocated from Judah to Babylon, I mean, it had to be so stressful. It was unwanted change. If ever anyone has faced unwanted change, hundreds of miles from home, so not fun, and yet he discovered it was a God thing. Look in verse 2, the Lord gave. Verse 9, God brought. Verse 17, God gave. God's fingerprints were all over this story. So as you're sitting in your food court, I want you to look around at your surroundings. Because God's fingerprints are on the napkin dispenser. His fingerprints were on the salt and pepper shakers. His fingerprints are on the utensils in front of you. They're on the doorknob. They're on the light switch. All around you in your life are God's fingerprints. He hasn't forgotten you. He will not forsake you. And you too, like Daniel, can discover that there is transformation and relocation.